everybody. It is great to be here one more time today. And my name's Gary Fowler. I am the CEO and president and founder of GSD, Get Shit Done Venture Studio, premier AI and quantum venture studio located in the heart of Silicon Valley. I'm a 17-time serial entrepreneur with numerous unicorns under the belt. I was on the original management team of Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion and also EVA.AI, an AIHR tech company that I co-founded with Dr. David Yang. We believe that intellectual capacity is evenly spread around the world, but opportunities are not. And with that, I have an incredible guest today. You know, we all talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, chat GPT, but really what are the ethics involved and what's going to change in 2023? So I want to bring an incredible guest. D. Kai is a professor of computer science and engineering at uh, Hong Kong UST and a distinguished research scholar at Berkeley's International Computer Science Institute. He is among 17 scientists worldwide named by the Association for Computational Linguistics as a founding ACL fellow for his pioneering contributions to machine translation, machine learning foundation of systems like the Google, Yahoo, Microsoft translators. He's a PhD. He is one smart guy that has an incredible, incredible background. His doctoral studies were cognitive sciences, artificial intelligence, and computational linguistics at Berkeley. He worked on seminal projects on intelligent conversational dialogue agents and his PhD dissertation employing maximum entropy, entropy to model human perception. Oh, I got to hear about this. This is really cool. So he, in 2015, his name, Dikai, is one of the 100 most influential figures of Hong Kong. In 2019, Google named Dikai as one of the eight inaugural members of the AI Ethics Council, ATAC, Advanced Technology External Advisory Council. With that, Dikai, how are you doing today? I'm great. Great to be well, here. Man, you've got one hell of a background. I got to tell you, it's, it's just incredible. So how in the world did you get at, involved? When did you say to yourself, you know, I really like this AI and it's uh, really interesting. I like machine learning and data. When did that happen? Oh, it's a weird background, you know, sort of like uh, my, my, you know, Asian American immigrant parents are terrified uh, that I was just going to become a musician because I started picking out melodies on a on a piano when I was two. Apparently, I don't remember. Um, but like, uh, you know, so they were you singing too, Dikai, or were you just playing? I, no, really. Like, so, and the thing is, I didn't speak till I was almost three. Apparently, so you know, the thing was like they they saw the their future starving street musician, and so they fought like the Dickens until I was ten uh, to like sort of keep me um, uh, focused on uh, other more rewarding pursuits. Unfortunately for them, I really, really just loved putting electronics together and building analog synths uh, and got into computers and started building, you know, video games in uh, 6502 machine language, like two and a half registers and an 8-bit processor uh, on on very early, wow. early uh, Apple tubes. Um, you know, so... Uh, Wait a I, minute! You were at—you don't look that old to be involved in Apple twos. I have. Oh, man. oh you're a babe. I, I'm sure you're a babe in the woods, Gary. No, um, no, 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 I've been around. Actually, yesterday I talked to Daniel Kotke, actually one of the original team members of Apple. Right? We were yeah. talking about. We talked about Apple twos and ones, and, and uh, no, it's incredible, actually. Oh man, I, I cut my teeth designing and selling and building uh, lowercase adapters for those uh, Apple twos because. Uh, they weren't able to display anything but uppercase characters. 
Um, was that the one, the separate keypad that you would get separately, the one that plugged into the uh, the boards in the back, or what was that? No, no, no. Those were the like. So the Apple IIs had the integrated box. Um, ah, yeah, yeah, okay. Board. Um, but yeah, no. So I mean, you know, by the time I went to, you know, I dropped out of high school. Um, uh, went went to UCSD. Um, uh, after that, just sort of tested in, and uh, put myself into a, the liberal arts college there, Ravel College, which. Um, uh, you spend two years doing, you know, nothing but the requirements, the humanities, the literature, the philosophy, foreign languages, arts, music, you know, um, and um, I was, I, all the other engineers ran screaming away um, to, to the other colleges at UCSD um, because it was just so, uh, you know, so challenging and tough for an engineer uh, or a scientist to think this way. Um, I ended up being the only computer engineering major of my entire year there, but I just loved it. You know, my philosophy class was this advanced class on technology and society, if you can believe this. Oh, that's going to be cool. Oh, it was so cool. I was the only, only technologist in the class. The rest of them were just philosophers, you know, that were just bashing tech. Uh, so this was trial by fire. You know, um, I, I got an A. I was so proud of myself. Um, so, uh, against all these philosophy majors. Um, and, you know, by the time I finished my degree, I was like, okay, um, I, I'm really good at coding. I don't want to only do that for the rest of my life. It'd be boring. Um, the only way forward I can see is to marry that interest to something that is deeply um, associated with the humanities. And that's AI. And by the way, language is the core of human intelligence. Like that, that is what differentiates us from the intelligence of you know, the pet dog over here um, is the ability to not just pattern, you know, recognize and learn things through Pavlovian conditioning, but to actually be consciously aware of what you're doing by telling stories of what you're doing to yourself and to others um, using our linguistic abilities. And, and so, of, and, you know, of course, with that tie to, um, the study of humanities and literature and language and all that kind of thing. Um, this was this was really exciting to me. And UCSD back then was the hotbed of neural network research. I, you know, people um, who've been around long enough remember the the parallel distributed processing uh, revolution uh, that was uh, developing in the cognitive sciences uh, as a, an alternative to good old fashioned AI that was all logic based and rule based and you know humans manually writing knowledge representations. Uh, you know, forever. Um, and so sort of influenced by that, um, I, I went on to Berkeley cho choosing AI, cho you know, I, I leapt into natural language processing, which was dominated by that. But with the firm idea that we were never going to be able to model language um, under, you know, in the interpretation of all the ambiguity of almost every single word you utter, purely by writing logical rules. <laughs> you know, my, my advisor at Berkeley uh, uh, Robert Walensky, who was, uh, you know, um, sort of um, um, a, the the um, father of story understanding um, AI, uh, okay. and and leader of the group there that included um, uh, at the time that I was there uh, Peter Norvig, um, and Dan Jarowski and Jim Martin uh, and Jim Mayfield, um, Marty Hurst, and uh, many you know other sort of people now colleagues. Who have who have really gone on in different areas of natural language processing, and we cut our teeth um, building one of the seminal dialogue systems. Uh, it was called the Unix Consultant, and you you 
you know. What year was that, DK? This, I joined the group, uh, oh, let's see, I joined um, Berkeley in 1984. Uh, God, I can't believe that. You don't look that old. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I I, I did join young, but yeah, no, I'm, um, like I said, you're... (laughs) Well, that's amazing. You are a babe in the woods, I'm sure. Um, no, 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 no. I've been involved. So I graduated from college in 1980 myself. So I know, you know, I was back selling the first Apple IIs, and I was back in that same Commodore uh, Super Pets and 9000s and the whole nine yards. So I was there, too. Well, you, you are keeping very well, right? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, you're way better than I. <laughs> I mean, you look great at first. I didn't thought you were in your, you know, early 30s. Oh my God! <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, so you know, um, uh, it 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 just you know, I ended up doing my PhD, uh, six years of um, um, <laughs> screaming fights with my advisor. Um, not me doing the screaming, <laughs> him doing the screaming. But then six months before I graduated, um, uh, you know, because I had said the entire time to him, "Look, you you can't possibly solve this problem without." probabilities, statistics, machine learning, you know, neural nets, something like that, because um, there are no rules for this. Like everything is ambiguous. It's all context dependent and it's all a matter of, of degree of certainty. And, and as I, uh, about six months before I graduated, yet another, handed him yet another draft of um, a chapter of my thesis. And to my utter shock, um, it came back um they, they would always come back covered in red ink but but this time it came back and he was like Dakai, i finally understand what you've been doing all these years this is incredible this is the best thing ever and you know i <laughs> he flipped wow, that's great. Being my biggest champion um so uh you know i think um a lot of that background to, to answer your question in thinking about the humanities thinking about psychology and and, and philosophy and literature had a lot to do with how I ended up where I ended up. And and now not only, you know, sort of still pushing the edge on thinking through um, machine learning, AI, natural language processing models deep, deep in our research labs, but also uh, for the last decade, um, what the what the impact on society is. And, and that is something that deeply has been concerning me uh, for a long time. I, I chose uh, when I graduated, um, when I was recruited to Hong Kong uh, here to um, in the founding uh, faculty of the super ambitious then American style University of Science and Technology, which has rocketed uh, to become you know one of the strongest international universities in 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 tech research, uh, and uh, you know it, it's it's been um, for me very important that the first thing that I chose to apply this brave new world of machine learning of language interpretation to was translation engines. Uh, You know, Hong Kong has been for 170 years or so, uh, this oddball east-west culture uh, that evolved under 150 years of British colonialization, uh, where you had the 1% who were the English speakers uh, in control of a society that where the 99% were sort of uh, separated by language. It's a little bit like the way Latin was used in the Middle Ages to separate the ruling class. And of course, I, I'm coming from California. I'm coming from Berkeley. He's landing in this. And I'm going like, well, how was that? This isn't good. 
<laughs> you know, wow. uh, let me see if I can um, deploy this new machine learning approach to um, bridging that kind of gap between cultures, um, you know, put put everybody in a position of understanding each other better. That has, you know, reducing that kind of polarization, reducing that kind of bias has been the mission, um, I would say that that um, um, in, in my life. And so then, you know, a, about a decade ago to see AI, you know, the machine learning stuff that I was part of the vanguard of, of, of making happen in AI being put to use in ways in social media and recommendation engines and search engines that were doing the polar opposite, you know, turning people into different polarized camps and, 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 and encouraging their biases, especially their unconscious cognitive biases, uh, is that, uh, you know, just set off all sorts of alarm bells for me. And that, that's when I started really speaking about the ethics part of the problem uh, looking at it both from a societal standpoint and also from, you know, understanding what the AI itself was doing, uh, both what, what it's superhuman at doing, um, which is why it's amplifying these effects in society, and also what its weaknesses till today are, which is why it's mindlessly doing this um, without, you know, without any sort of checks and balances within the algorithms. Yeah, so, you know, we talk, I write a lot about compassion, emotion. By the way, I came at this as a psychologist, you know, moving into AI. So I came in the other direction. I'm not nearly as deep as you are in terms of that technology. We build companies, right? But we came at it from a different perspective because I, when I was in graduate school, I was in institutional research and understood that, that there's incredible power that needs to be harnessed. I actually was using those Herman Hollerith cards. I don't know. You probably don't remember those, but we actually. Oh, no. I, I have done Fortran programs on hundreds of cars, oh, Cobol programs. On <laughs> so we, we had these cards. I remember these stacks and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is unbelievable. So that got me started. Then I started selling the first Apple computers through one of the, well, the groups and Commodores. And I started to really get into it. So this is unbelievable. This is what I was thinking about. And, yeah. but I thought we're, we're a little bit too early. You know, where's this going to evolve? And here we are. But what's going to happen, Kai? I mean, you, you go down through and, you, Kai, you look at this environment that we have and you've got this kind of unrestrained AI doing all kinds of things, right? And how do we build compassion and emotion in it so that, you know, if we don't, nothing good's going to happen, right, in my opinion. And so how do we build those? You know, I, I, I wrote an article it says like your grandmother, right? We need somebody that loves us and cares about us at the same time has a lot of knowledge to be able to help us, to guide us, like an like your grandparents, you know? And how do we do that? And is that going to happen in your opinion? Or are we moved in the other direction? We only care about efficiency and effectiveness. And who cares about if something cares about you? I, you know, it, my view on this, and, and this is controversial within AI ethicists, um, uh, my view on this is that uh, this is an existential um, risk. Uh, and for us to actually make it, we absolutely need AIs to do this. Um, I gave a talk uh, before, let's see, I guess it would have been 2018, uh, um, TEDx Oakland. Um, uh, where the te where the teleprompting uh, the screens um, uh, broke down 
<laughs> I had to give the talk looking at things on my phone. Um, but uh, but I do really like that talk uh, in spite of that because it was about artificial mindfulness. It, it was um, basically arguing that, um, you know, why, why true AI is impossible without mindfulness uh, in the sense of actually not just being an efficient and effective uh, slave that you've trained through Pavlovian conditioning, essentially, um, and actually be aware of how, how, you know, you, the user, are thinking and feeling about what it's doing, and also aware of how the AI itself is thinking and feeling about what it's doing. And then how does that, but that changes the dynamic of relationship with AI, doesn't completely, it? It completely. changes it to a more equal footing, doesn't it? It does. And this is what and scares a lot of people. The master in that sense. Yeah, you have, well, so um, this is, I think, the part of the uh, crux of the debate in AI ethics. You have uh, one camp that argues AIs should always be slaves, that humans are masters and AIs remain the slaves. Well, that hasn't really helped us in the past, and if you look at the history of the when world, has that ever turned out well in the history of planet? Nothing good, Dikai. Really, that, that it. I, I understand the uh, completely understand the scariness of AIs that aren't just you know like under uh, under your, your feet, um, but without that kind of mindful awareness of uh, how you how humans are thinking and feeling about what it does, the machine cannot have empathy for, and without that, it cannot right. make decisions that actually care about the outcomes. And that is an even graver danger. And so yeah. I think the question should not be whether we can have ever larger, mindless, efficient, effective crunchers that are slaves, mechanical tools, um, without, having the checks and balances of actually being sensitive to the outcomes. And the, the real question is, how do you how do you train the AIs so that they are empathetic, that they care about the outcomes, that they actually do, um, you know, have a sense of responsibility, of societal responsibility. Uh, and that is the kind, and, and what does that mean to society? Those are the conversations that we urgently need in society to be having in 2023. Yeah, I not the I, about I, Hollywood I, visions uh, of, you know, the, the robot overlords. I agree. I mean, the thing is, you're going to have exactly what you don't want happen. Because if you keep, you know, pushing it down and don't build these compassionate systems, an empathetic system, nothing good. You know, and the concern, I don't know about you, Dikai, but some of the stuff for weaponizing AI in all kinds of strange ways. Um, I mean, you start building them empathy and compassion and it starts changing things, doesn't it? And how does that gonna play out? So, I mean, you think about, you know, where this is gone and where the research is going, it's very interesting. And, you know, the, you know you're, you're right, because if you have a slave mentality to this AI, at some point, it's gonna get to the point where it's gonna on its own think, listen, you aren't very nice. <laughs> I think one of the things we need to learn right now is how much, you know, e even with, uh, you know, today's furor over chat GPT, right? Well, I mean, the reason it does the things that it does is because it's a mirror of what you, what we are. And we need to learn that already, because if you try to then go on and say, well, we need to have, um, 
treat AIs as slaves. And this is how we're going to structure things. Imagine when that mirror boomerangs back on humanity. Nothing good. Nothing good. Nothing good. I agree with you. You know, I, I had a chance to address the UN a year, a little over a year ago about technology as a tool for peace. And I went down, I don't, I don't know about you, Kai, but Kai, we go down through and we look at, you know, we got to double the food supply by 2050 to feed everybody. Shouldn't we be thinking about like how we can use AI and IoT to be able to increase crop yield? You know, at the same time, global warming's taking place. I mean, look at nine bombastic cyclones in California. It's unheard of, right? In recorded yep. history, unheard of. We got to go down through and figure out how we can live together. And that was my speech at the UN. I said, listen, you got 1.4 billion people in Africa and 54 countries, 270 million approximately in Nigeria, estimated to go to 1 billion in five years. Yeah. Right? You're talking about, you know, we better figure out how to work together because our little tiny planet is not going to be able to take it much longer, right? With the way we're destroying it. We're destroying trees, we're destroying food supply, water supplies are becoming non potable. We got to use the, in my opinion, Right, use the tools to be able to help us live better, more effective, kind lives. Absolutely, uh, you know, a lot of our institutions are based on pre-AI, pre-internet, pre-computer uh, uh, notions that are, are way past their shelf life. Uh, and the very same AI technology gives us a lot of enabling tools that would let us do some of these things. Um, that would uh, look, I, I think we need to re-examine, uh, but that will have to be a topic for another day, uh, notions of intellectual property uh, for, and, and how we incentivize. Oh my those. God, and that, Dikai, I was just thinking about that so t today, actually, because I went down through and I started to write a book and I used ChatGPT, but I actually wrote the articles, right? So of my articles and ChatGPT is a co-author, you know, Da Vinci. And so uh, with my friend Sanjay, anyhow, what is, I mean, who owns the IP, right? So you go in and you say, I'd like to play some relaxing music in a style of David Lance. And, yeah. uh, but I'd like to have uh, a little Wint Marcellus on the side, a little jazz added to it. You know, I want to jazz it up a little bit. Who owns that? Yeah, you know, um, to, I, I really firmly believe in the 21st century, in the era of machine learning and AI, um, that that these questions are, are um, they're not even meaningful, they're, they're misframed. Um, the notion that ideas are something that are uh, ownable and property is a metaphor. Uh, in, you know, we shoehorned that uh, in the Middle Ages uh, into um, in a society, a pre-industrial society uh, where goods were physical. Uh, and there was cost of manufacture and all that. And, you know, to most, the vast majority of the world, it's a very weird concept, you know, that Western <laughs> European culture has by force tried to impose on everybody. Uh, and, you know, um, it, it, it's worked sort of limped along uh, less and less well. And really the, the issue is as, as someone whose primary work involves creating intellectual output, non-tangible output, you know, whether as a researcher, a writer, a speaker, a musician, whatever, it's at odds with what creators actually want. What creators actually want is for our work not, not to be like, oh, it's mine, you can't have it, nobody can see it, right? That's, no creator really wants that. Mm -hmm. What the creator actually really wants is as broad as possible for people to get those ideas 
get 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 that output. And and the whole notion of property based on a scarcity mindset is at fundamentally misaligned with what creators want. And I I actually believe that AIs give us the um, potential to develop a new model where creators are incentivized to create and to distribute as broadly as possible uh, and get compensated for that, which is the, the, the main purpose of the metaphor, right? And it's been centuries since this metaphor of intellectual output as property was you know, created and revolutionized things. We're long overdue for another revolution given the magnitude of what AI on the internet and machine learning are right at the cusp of like dousing all of humanity with. Well, I mean, the thing is, you know, when you can write a book, I know my friend just went in and he wrote a 146 page book with ChatGPT. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Really? And, seriously? I mean, like, and, and who's not being compensated for that? Exactly. Where did ChatGPT get this material? Right. So, so this, this notion of property, I think really needs to be reexamined. Well, I mean, but that goes for humans too, right? Because Absolutely. your knowledge, we have the same problem. Where did you get your knowledge, right? You yeah. read it. Whose articles did you read? Well, you read some of the top articles on the on the planet, and then you came up with some of your own opinion. Who owns that end opinion? You or, or the person that wrote the original article where you got the information? It's just fascinating. So, yeah. um, no, it's a, incredible. My, my partner in EVA was David Yang. I don't know if you've ever heard of company Abbey. That does translation software and that kind of thing a phd from mipt and he and i had multiple conversations because you know this um, emotion and compassion i've been saying a long time nothing good's going to happen you know i remember when that sophie said uh, some uh, nasty things about humanity right said uh, i'm going to destroy oh, so the uh, robot the robot, oh, Sophia, the robot. yeah, yeah said some nasty, not nice things and I'm thinking of myself. My daughter is my, my daughter is interning for, for that company. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow. I mean, it was incredible because, you know, I was thinking of myself. You know, I mean, the reason you say things like that is because you haven't learned the right way, right? You haven't had compassion and emotion and diplomacy built into the system. And so, yeah, it's, you know, um, you are incredible. We got to have a part two of this because, I can I could be here with you for hours talking about it. And I know the audience out there, they said a lot of the um, people are saying, uh, glad to be here. Hooray, uh, Dikai and Entropy, uh, steal the brain, steal this brain idea. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's, you know, we're in the verge of another revolution happening for humanity. People That's don't true. get it. In my opinion, right, this data... We're in the state of infobesia, as Alvin Toffler said many, many years ago in Future Shock, and we can't deal with the data. That's another thing, Dekai. I mean, think about it. And what's your opinion about we have all this data around us, right? In our worlds, we have 300,000 items in our personal cloud. Entire web in 1996 was 257,000 websites. You, Dekai, have more information in your personal cloud than the entire web. The problem is following the same trajectory, but that I mean it's doubling every year. In five years with IoT, you could have 10 million items. How in the world, you know, can you can you find out what you have, right? How many times in the last two weeks has somebody said, you know, Dekai, I sent you something. Uh, did you get it? Where did you send it? I sent it to your email. Which one? Or Signal or Telegram or WhatsApp. Uh, when did you send it? Three days ago. I can't find it. Will you send it again? 
Oh yeah. And it's over and over. The problem, because these are the kind of things, because if not, we're going to have two levels of society. People would understand data and people don't, right? Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you understand the data and you're tied in with um, chat GPT or unsupervised AI, and you're able to make the best financial decisions, you're going to have the most amount of money. Yeah. Well, right? you know, this, this, this touches on another, one of my topics, you know, like, so I, I, I serve also on the board of think tanks like TFS, which, which is, you know, heavily involved in shaping the forthcoming European Union uh, AI Act, uh, follow up to GDPR and things like that. Uh, and I think that one of the things that legislators who are thinking about uh, data um, is that they're, they're sort of like GDPR and so forth. There's a lot of thought about privacy, about how do you keep your data private? What I think is missing, to, to your point, is the right uh, of people to data access. Um, because right now, when you're having that, like, where did you send it? Did you send it in Signal, in Telegram, in WhatsApp, in, uh, you know, whatever, you know, which email account? AI is capable of helping us with that problem. The barriers, however, are that these different organizations uh, don't make it possible for you to have your personal AI easily access all of those different channels because they're, again, they're locked behind sort of each company's um, sort of little uh, walled garden. Um, uh, and they're, they're trying to do that for, for commercial reasons, but there needs to be a right for people to be able to access their own data, regardless of that. Um, no, I, I agree, you know, whether it's tokenization or whatever it is, I mean, we got to come up that's the problem. We tried, we developed with one of my companies called Findo, the company I co-founded, a cross-platform search. And it yeah. wasn't that it didn't work. The problem is people don't remember their passwords because they're locked into these systems and they couldn't, you know what I mean? There's like, yeah. you know, you could have Google Drive, Dropbox, Fox, Slack, all this, but they don't remember their passwords and they don't make it easy between the companies to get at that information. Yeah. So I agree with you. I mean, access to data is really important. You know, I'm dealing with a company that's developed an incredible technology to be able to help patients, you know, have advocacy, advocacy so they can get to the right kind of doctors, right? It's another problem. And having these kind of tools, you know, these AI and supervised AI tools that have compassion become could become advocates, right? This is a doctor. Here's one that I would suggest. This is the reason why. Let me tell you a little bit about what's happening. It makes you feel better, right? It's almost like having a friend. Yes. Yeah. Hard friend. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's great. Listen, um, we're coming into the top of the show. You're amazing, actually. I'd love to get you back on for part two so we can dive into this a bit more because you, you're just a repository of incredible information. And I really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Uh, thank you for having me on. Really thank enjoyed you. it. And to all my audience out there, thank you for joining one more time. GSD presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech. And my name is Gary Fowler, and I am your host. Stay happy, stay safe, and stay healthy. I'll be back again. Stay tuned for another exciting edition coming soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, DK. Thank you, Gary.